Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Very happy that we can talk about the data now. We can head over to Michael McKee. He's in conversation with the former Fed President, William Dudley. Thank you very much, and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. We're joined by William Dudley. He's the former president, of course, of the New York Federal Reserve, now uh, in semi-retirement, a senior scholar at Princeton University for the time being, until you, uh, you come up with something you know, more interesting to do. Yeah, this there is, is anything you know, Being at Princeton is plenty interesting. <laughs> well, you're keeping up, I know, with uh, everything that has been going on. Uh, one of the questions that comes up here as people look forward to uh, what monetary policy is going to be the rest of the years. Where is neutral? Because the Fed seemed to think it was another 50 basis points or so higher, but now we got a pause, so maybe it's come down a little, maybe we're right at neutral. Where do you think we are? Look, I don't think that anybody knows with any certainty. I mean, this has been an unusual business cycle. Think about how long it's taken us to get back to full employment. I think generally what the Fed is saying uh, that in, in the language of being patient is that they're going to take a pause and wait for more data. I think there are a number of things that push them off moving to more tightening moves. Uh, number one, uh, you had a tightening of financial conditions. Stock prices went down, credit spreads widened. Uh, so that, that was one concern. Second, foreign growth looked a lot weaker, especially in China and Europe. Number three, there wasn't any inflation. You know, the inflation was the story of the dog that didn't bark. Uh, even though the unemployment rate was low, you weren't seeing any accelerate, much, of, much of an acceleration in wages, and that wasn't fill, feeding into prices. My own personal view is that as long as inflation stays quiescent, Fed will probably be on hold. If, though, the economy keeps growing at above trend pace, more pressure on resources, inflation probably will start to drift back up again. So my best judgment is the Fed's probably not done yet. Well, how far do they go? Uh, at what point do you risk an accident? Well, that's why I think they're being patient right now. They don't want to ca inadvertently cause a recession with inflation this low because people would say, well, what did you do that for? If inflation actually were to accelerate a bit, then they at least have a motivation for why they're moving to a t tighter monetary policy stance. Well, what you did that for was to prevent a uh, downturn in the economy, which this group here, uh, according to a survey of NAB members, suggests may come in 2020 or 2021. Uh, but the Fed doesn't have a lot of ammunition at this point to fight it. Well, that's one concern that the Fed is wrestling with is, is if the peak federal funds rate in this cycle is, you know, two and a half, three percent, three and a half percent, there's not that much room between that and, and zero. And so there's been a lot of discussion uh, among Fed officials and other market observers on does the Fed have enough firepower to get us out of the next uh, economic downturn. My own view is I think there's more firepower than people realize because the Fed has invented a whole bunch of new tools to use if they're ever at the zero lower bond again. Ford guidance, uh, asset purchases, uh, open-ended asset purchases. We'll just keep buying assets until we actually achieve our objectives of an actual recovery. But one of the arguments there is that a lot of that success that the Fed had with those tools came from the announcement value. Uh, now, people know the tools are there, so they may not have as much effect. Well, I think that if you, let's imagine that we were in an economic downturn and the Fed had reduced interest rates to zero. If, if the Fed announced that we're going to do 
by treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities until we achieve a, a given unemployment rate objective. That would be a, also a good commitment strategy. It would make, make people realize that rates are going to stay low for a long time until the Fed actually has success. And that's actually quite powerful in terms of supporting economic activity. Has the Fed gotten too intertwined with the markets now? One of the reasons that the Fed, as you just said, went on hold is the market problems and dislocations we saw in December, and now everybody's back to the Powell put. Uh, well, can you disentangle yourself? Well, it's tricky, right? Because the Fed doesn't care about the stock market for the stock market's sake. It cares about the stock market because if the stock market were to go down a lot and stay down, it would have consequences for the economy. So there isn't a put in the sense that the Fed is trying to support the stock market at a given level. But there is a put in the sense that if the stock market gets very weak, that has consequences for the outlook and therefore for monetary policy. Well, they also uh, were worried about the balance sheet. The balance sheet was supposed to be watching paint dry. Uh, did Wall Street get that wrong? Well, I think all that happened there was the Fed decided that uh, the, the, the banks have a greater demand for reserves than the Fed had thought. So that just means that the stopping point for when you stop shrinking the balance sheet is a little bit earlier in time than what they had anticipated. It's not a big policy adjustment. They never knew how many bank, how many reserves banks were going to demand, and now they're finding out that banks look like they are going to demand a little bit more reserves than they thought. That just means the stopping point is going to be a little bit sooner. But it doesn't have huge consequences for policy. Does QT, though, have the same effect on the downside it, that it had? It in doesn't the, seem to be having that the same effect at this point. Part of the reason, I think, is that people still are worried about inflation being too low rather than inflation being too high. So if you look at what, 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 what market participants call bond term premium, the spread between bonds and the expected path of short-term rates, that's very, very tiny. Uh, that's quite different than in, in past economic cycles. Now let me ask you a po about a point that uh, both uh Chairman Powell and Vice Chairman Clarity have made in the last couple of days, and that is that the federal deficit is just way too high, and it's going to have an impact on the country. And yet, uh, we've talked about that for decades, and bond rates are not going up? Well, I think it's partly because you have to look at the U.S. bond rates in the context of rates elsewhere in the world, and we have very, very low rates in, in Europe and, and Japan, so that's obviously a factor. And two, people, yeah, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right, people's anxiety about budget deficits has gone down a lot, but I, I'm sort of where they are. Uh, the budget deficit is not only going to keep increasing, uh, the debt service cost is going to start to climb very, very rapidly, because not only is debt growing, interest rates are higher than they've been over the last 10 years. So I think that it, that it is going to be a problem, just not a problem right now. Well, what do you think of the uh, modern monetary theory, MMT, argument that is getting so much uh, traction these days, particularly up on Capitol Hill lately, that uh, if you print money in your own currency, you don't have to worry about deficits for a while at least. I know it's uh, a squishy definition. Well, I think they're overstating it. It's true that if you pr print currency, print issue debt in your own currency, you don't have to default. So there's no default risk. But there's definitely an inflation risk. If you have too much money chasing too few goods and services, you're going to get inflation, and that would be the consequence. So there, you know, as in economics, there is no free lunch. So this mod modern monetary theory, I'm not buying. One last question uh, on inflation, and that is, where do you think it goes from here? It uh, disappeared in the fourth quarter. Uh, does it start to come back? Well, I think it'll probably come back a little bit because obviously oil prices have recovered, so that's something that you know moves in, in and out qu pretty quickly into the inflation numbers. I think underneath the surface, you're seeing a very gradual firming of inflation, uh, driven really by the tightness of the labor market and the firmness uh, that we're finally seeing in, in wages. Enough for the Fed to have to react? Well, we'll see. It's gonna, you know, all this stuff is slow moving, so we'll see. I, I don't think the Fed's going to do anything in the near term. Uh, second half of the year, maybe the Fed starts hiking rates again. All right. Bill Dudley, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide, we'll send it back to you. 
Oh, Michael McKee, thank you so much. For the former president of the New York Federal Reserve, and of course, Bill Dudley at Goldman Sachs. And I should say, he wrote with Ed McKelvey a wonderful chapter in my book. This was Mike, uh, John Farrell. This was 45 years ago. This was after, you know, just sort of early Thatcher uh, when that book came out. One of the stories off the mark today, Brexit, there's really not much there. You're, uh, a sterling, rather, 133 is weaker, 132.39 uh, right now. And, and yen, wow, what a move, 111.85. John, I missed that. Japanese yen, weaker, 111.85. I, I just flat out missed that. It is a risk on morning, um, reflected in it that yields right up. Yields are right up against resistance. We've had a bit of a drift through yeah. this week. A bit of a drift. Why don't you bring our uh, wonderful guest in on the yield space? I'm very happy to catch up with Priya Misra, TD Securities Head of Global Interest Rate Strategy, one of my guiding lights for the bond market over and the last the real yield. Years. Look for it this afternoon. Absolutely. Great summary there on Bloomberg Television. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Priya. Let's start, Priya, with the range that we've been in for treasuries, a very tight range. We're actually still in it but this week we've started to drift higher your thoughts hi john uh and hi tom uh thanks for having me on so yes i think we have drifted a little bit higher um i think what's been interesting is over the last couple of months we've had a significant risk on move and yet uh, interest rates have stayed in this extremely narrow range like 260 270 we've been you know very tightly bound there and i think it's a, it's a function of the macro market sort of move from a policy mistake or a fed policy mistake perception in the fourth quarter to now a dovish fed um, and and which is why even though equities uh, were able to rally uh, uh, you know, credit spreads compressed, interest rates were un unable to sell off because essentially the market priced in this dovish Fed. I think now going forward, it has to come back to fundamentals. And that's where we might have more of a move in interest rates rather than uh, than risk assets. So if we start seeing uh, the first look of uh, February data in the U.S. and we start seeing that actually growth is not decelerating, we're still growing above potential, I think we should be, uh, uh, you know, back to talking about Fed hikes. And then on the global growth front, um, you know, if we do get a China trade deal, if we do uh, see China stimulus, I think we're then talking about a little bit of a upside move in rates. So we are uh, we are actually short duration here looking for a small increase in rates, uh, you know, close to the 285 level. So Priya, at the moment, I think most people would conclude it's far too premature to call the turn in the global economy with any real conviction. But how encouraged are you by some of the data points this week when the headline data has been terrifically underwhelming, but we're just clinging to these little elements? these little components of PMI that show a bit of encouragement. Right. Now, that's fair. I, I think it's, it, it, it is too early to say whether it's, we're actually turning. I think we're looking for momentum, though. Is the momentum decelerating? Yeah. And I think the early read is that maybe the momentum is stabilizing. And we're also looking at uh, policymakers globally that seem to have changed their stance from right. normalization, tightening to now you know, being accommodative. What are people doing with their money? It's tough. Uh, I mean, I think, um, you know, they're staying in cash. Cash is king. In the U.S., uh, front-end cash is giving you positive real rates. So I think you keep risk light. Um, you know, you certainly have some cash for uh, liquidity reasons. And then you start dipping back into risk. And 
this is where I think it's hard to say that you should just be buying all risk assets. You start doing more credit work, and you you pick uh, you know sectors or or issues that uh, or, or other issuers that uh, that still may look fundamentally strong. But it it's a tough market. I'm hearing this yeah. from every investor I meet. The tight range, the right. fact that mm-hmm. risk has rallied, I think uh, you know means that it's it's harder work now putting money well, to work. This is fascinating, and someone that would agree with Priya Misra TD uh, Securities is Daniel Fuss, who was just on Bloomberg Television, the acclaimed, really the giant of total return uh, investing. Bill Gross has always said that Mr. Fuss at Luma Sales was out front on this. Priya, can you exist now after the last 10 years we've experienced investing like Mr. Fuss, where you grab the coupon and wait for credit recovery and price appreciation of a note or bond? Is that game still out there? Or all the young Turks like you become so sophisticated, you can't do what Dan Fuss did? Um, I appreciate you calling me young, uh, so we. But we won't talk about that. Um, but I, I, I do think there's, a, you know, that trade still exists. The carry trade is there. You look at demographics in the U.S. or globally. I think demand for fixed income should be there. Now you have to diversify your portfolio. I think the difference in what I was recommending, you know, 10 years ago was yeah. to be out the curve. I don't think you're getting paid up that much more to take on duration risk. So I think the front yeah. end actually is more attractive. I would mention, John, that Mr. Fuss had the history of like buying all of Ontario's utility bonds or buying all of New Zealand's paper. Huge bets. Fascinating. Paid off. Continue with pre-emission. So, Priya, something you touched on earlier that I think is quite interesting. A lot of people have been quite bearish the global economy and encouraged to take on duration, pick up at the long end of, say, the Treasury curve. What I hear from you is not that. Priya, Priya, why is your view so different? I think, um, you know, if you look at a risk-adjusted uh, return, uh, you're taking on a lot more risk and not really earning that much more. I mean, if I look at the two-year at 250 versus the 10-year at 270, if you have any interest rate increase, you're uh, much more at risk the further out the curve you are. So I would say, you know, if you have some risk assets on, own the front right. end, own bills or twos rather than, uh, you know, taking on all that duration risk yeah, for not earning that much more. Well, let me speak for our audience. That's all great, and it sounds brilliant Priya Misra except I need yield if I need yield where do I get it so I think credit there are there are pockets of credit where I think you 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 know you can dip your toes back in um, and you know take some credit take on some front-end duration keep risk light because I think um, you know this is an environment where we're going to get these tail events I mean just look at the fourth quarter uh, and uh, you know that's when if you have some powder dry you can go back and invest the moment there's some, uh, you know, risk off, that's the time to, you know, go back in. It's hard to say you should be 100% invested right now, just given that all risk premiums have compressed. So I think keep some keep some powder dry, and uh, invest in some mix within the fixed income world that I that I look at, credit versus some front end bills. I think is attractive. John Farrell, John Herman just publishes at MUFJ. I'd love to have Priya comment on this. Mr. Herman, Priya notices a little bit of inflation stickiness within his microanalysis. Do you agree? Do you see inflation stickiness out there that bears a close watch through March and particularly to the March 20 meeting? Um, you know, by stickiness, you mean in the fundamental data or the market price? The fundamental data, 
leading to a misjudgment by the disinflation crew, as John Farrell mentioned early in the segment. Right. So I think, uh, yes, even the data suggests that there's significant inflation inertia. And we're in an environment where none of these models have done a great job predicting inflation. And so are we at some inflection point where there's going to be a big pickup in inflation? I think the market has sort of is is in the show me mode. And so unless we start seeing that pickup in inflation, I don't know if the market's going to say or or that uh, even the Fed yeah. uh, seems to be losing a little bit of faith in this big pickup in inflation. So I would have to agree, yes, there is yeah. the stickiness. J- just wonderful. Uh, Priya Mizra, we're going to thank have to you, Priya. Their TD Securities, just wonderful. Perfect. I mean, you know, it's Friday. We're looking at the themes that matter from Seattle to New York, which can only mean Amazon. And, you know, the quality of the guests we have. You know, John, in America, I don't know about in England, you have to take Western Civ 101 when you go to school. If you go to that commie institution, Haverford, down in Pennsylvania, Is that a commie it's a required requirement. <laughs> you need to take Socialism 101 just to get in the door. From Haverford, Shira Ovaday joins us this morning. What, what, is it like, what is it like freshman year at Haverford? I do not remember uh, any communist propaganda <laughs> in okay. my freshman year courses, if that's the question. It's a great school. It's a fabulous Quaker uh, institution and yes, wildly eclectic, but it's great preparation for for the Battle of Queens, which is the class, cultural, and political battle. Let's just frame it between the gentlewoman from the Bronx and the governor in Albany. Give us an update on Bezos in Queens, given the cultural battle of the New York Times this morning. Yeah, well, the the New York Times is reporting that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of the state of New York, has basically made overtures to Amazon executives, including Jeff Bezos himself, to get Amazon to reconsider their decision to pull back from this HQ2 or whatever HQ one and a half that Amazon was planning. So Bezos to build comes back Queens. in and he's a pinata. A second time. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem, at least from the reporting, that the conversation is rather one-sided. It's basically Cuomo making assurances that if Amazon reconsiders, that Cuomo will sort of shepherd the political, the messy political process himself and take some more well, responsibility know, I, I make, over that. Okay, and, but sure, I make jokes about it. You are wired into the store like no one. Can that happen? Can the governor in Albany tell the state senator what to do and and the others that have driven forward this exit of plans? I I don't think so. So the the issue here is that both Amazon and local political leaders, including Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio, they botched this, right? It was this complicated, secretive process uh, for uh, for a year, highly public and secretive, kind of a toxic mix involving one of the world's most valuable companies. And I think it just left a bitter taste in everyone's mouth, including local politicians, local residents, Amazon yeah. executives, and it doesn't seem like there's a do-over. And it's very public this morning, once again, with this big letter in the New York Times, Dear Mr. Bezos, Please come back, essentially. Shira, my issue is this whole HQ, as you put it, 1.5. Why did they do this both so publicly and then so privately to get the states to fight with each other? As you say, it's toxic. Why didn't they just do what Google are doing in Manhattan? Pick somewhere, buy it, invest. 
Yeah, I, I I wonder, I hope that Amazon learned their lesson from this process, that they basically set up a reality television competition saying, please, all U.S. cities, all North American cities, come and um, you know lay flowers at our feet and tell us why your city should be graced with Amazon's presence. And that might have been a good idea in, in late 2017 when Amazon kicked off that process, but it just kind of got more and more distasteful as the process went on. And also, look, Amazon, the, the story of Amazon also got a little bit more complicated in, in that year that the process took. Amazon became more valuable, more powerful. Bezos became the world's richest person. And then when they kind of decided, oh, we're not going to make an HQ2, we're going to make two or three HQ2s, I think it just... It just seemed a little gross. So, Shira, going forward, I mean, so much work has been done here in New York City to attract tech firms. Some tremendous work has been done, and you can see the results. Does this episode spill over into anything more broadly, or is it just an Amazon, uniquely Amazon episode? I think it's mostly a uniquely Amazon episode. The The reason that the tech community, the tech hiring, has flourished in New York City is not necessarily about, you know, tax breaks and showy political press conferences. It's because this city has a lot to offer uh, in the tech industry, including highly talented people in good infrastructure, at least in theory. This is a place that a lot of people still want to live. And that isn't changing just because Amazon kind of got its fingers burned on the stove. Shira, good to see you. You've got to come back. Always happy. Always happy to be here. Shira Overday, Bloomberg opinion columnist, and Tom Keane with quite an introduction there. It's it's true. I mean, I'm jealous. I wish. Can I go to Haverford? Domains of knowledge, analysis of the social world, individuals, institutions, and cultures. You trying to say that Shira's a communist? Shira is not a commie. Meaning (laughs) interpretation. Shira is not. Have you read anything Shira's written? Wait, I'm taking analytical geometry, and Shira's diving into meaning interpretation. I think you do well over there. Honestly, I think you do really well. What do you get for a credit for that? I don't know. Is analytical but, geometry really a no, thing? No, I'm the one that took <laughs> oh, analytical oh, geometry. Okay. All right. And, and, but, you know, it's great. Good morning down in Philadelphia and Haverford. Would you think the Phillies picked up a good player there? I'm excited about Bryce, Har- Bryce Harper in Philadelphia. See that? You get your that sports amazing. Report. She can do it all. Share over there on Amazon, on socialism, on Bryce Harper. Mint. This is a joy. We're scheduled here to talk to our Eric Schatzker about one William Gross. You'll recall that Mr. Gross moved bonds, made coupon, did a total return act at PIMCO, went to Janus. He decided to retire a couple weeks ago. We chatted him up then. And this is a really important conversation. But before we get to that, we got to do what's important, that we have Eric Schatzker in the studio who <laughs> believes Toronto Maple Leafs blue. For those of you globally, here's what you need to know. The giant of the New York Islanders, just east of Manhattan, left the Islanders and joined up with the excitement of the iconic Toronto Maple Leafs, and for the first time last night, went home. You happen to be wearing Islanders blue and orange today, but he has met John Tavares, as as Phil emails in and says, is a total class act in the game of hockey. What has Tavares meant for the Maple Leafs and all those young kids that they have? Oh, 
Wow, that's an interesting point, place for us to start the conversation. Look, he's got experience. He's uh, This is going to sound like locker room talk. He's got ex- We do that all know, day here. Mm, he's got experience. Obviously, he has faced adversity. Yeah, like he, last night. Yeah, yes, that yes, fair enough, fair enough. But it's a young team. So yeah. a guy with not just his skill set, but his disposition, yeah. his humility is going to help those young kids play hockey And there's the something right way. different that you grew up with that I, I had folks when I was, I mean, little, a sweater. Hockey jerseys used to be sweaters. And I had a Toronto Maple <laughs> Leafs blue sweater. And there's something magical about the Leafs. What are the Original Leafs, six. What do the Leafs mean for Canada? Everything. I mean, that's them in Montreal, right? Well, sure. No, Montreal is, look, the, 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 the rub, if you will, about Montreal is that it's in Quebec, and teams in Quebec just don't inspire the rest of the country the way Very nice. a team You could in, be running for Mr. Trudeau's slot. <laughs> eh, oh, and, and there may be somebody else running for that slot in the not-too-distant future. That's the issue, yeah. right? If the Leafs end okay. up winning the Cup, the whole country celebrates. Your hockey talk for today. Thrilled to have Eric Schatzker with us. This conversation with Bill Gross was important. Why was it important? Well, it was an opportunity to ask Bill Gross, uh, as he has one foot out the door. Today is his last day at Janice Henderson, the end of an unbelievable 48-year career, uh, what we don't yet know. And you talked to him a couple of weeks ago, the day he announced his retirement. I went out there to see what was still left to learn from Bill Gross. And to ask the kinds of questions that we may not have asked yet. We have all read about the trials of uh, his nasty divorce, right? It was tabloid fodder thousands of miles away here in New York City. And so one of the questions I asked, Bill, was, you know, to what degree, if any, did that distract you? Because it, the burden is heavy to manage hundreds of millions of dollars of client money, not to mention hundreds of millions of dollars of your own money when you're going through that kind of thing. And here is what Bill Gross had to say in response it was really surprising my personality um not to get personal I, i'm an asperger uh and asperger's can compartmentalize they can operate um in in different universes without the other universes affecting them as much and and so yeah i had a nasty divorce and uh i still had uh you know feelings about Pimco, um, but I, I think he did pretty well um, in compartmentalizing them. Not that I didn't wake up in the middle of the night and, and start uh, damning one side or the other, but, um, but when I came to work, it was all business, and I, I don't think it affected me that much. But, you know, it's hard to know. It, you are not your best witness uh, when it comes to trying to figure out whether something is uh, affecting you or not. And uh, so that's a possibility. I didn't know you have Asperger's. Huh? Is that what you meant in February of 2016? In one of your outlooks, you wrote about Michael Lewis's book and the movie it spawned, The Big Short. Yes. And you said that you shared an attribute or an affliction, I think, yes. with one of the heroes, if you will, of that book, Michael Burry, Dr. Michael Burry, and it wasn't his glass eye. Exactly. Um, if you got a minute and a half, is a fascinating story. And so I read that book, and, and Lewis is a great writer, and he, he, in, within that chapter about uh, Michael Burry, uh, 
he listed 10 things um, that Asperger's have um, that Michael had as well. And I read them, and I go, and some of them were not being able to look somebody in the eye, which I'm not doing very well at the moment. Um, uh, you know, singular hobbies like stamp collecting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I go, right, that's me. I, I go, um, and so I, I took the book out to my ex-wife. I said, um, I read this. And she read it. I think I have Asperger's. And she said, you do. N not, not you do, but she said, you do. I said, how would you know that? She said, well, you know, when we were uh, having dinner with Bill Gates and Melinda, and that was like five years before, at a Duke reunion fundraiser at his home, she said, we were sitting uh, at the table, and I looked at Gates, and I looked at you, and I looked at Gates, and I looked at you. I said, you were doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Your mannerisms were all the same. And so uh, I had heard that he had Asperger's in a mild form, so I, I went to a psychologist and I described it. And the psychologist said, he has Asperger's. So I said, uh, why didn't you tell me? And she said, because I thought it might hurt your feelings. Uh, you I, didn't know this about yourself? Until mm -mm. I read it in that book. Um, until you were in your early 70s. Yeah, but it explained a lot. Not, not that, and I'm, I'm sort of proud of it, or else I wouldn't be telling you. Um, I'm sort of proud of it because it explains a lot about me. Not that, you know, all Asperger's are not geniuses. Some, you know, the intelligence thing is not necessarily a, a big part of it. But, um, you know, my t personal behavior and uh, ability to relate to people, my singular hobbies, stamp collecting, this and this and this and this. Um, yeah, it said, hey. Uh, so, and so maybe I do. Um, and so I, I did go to a psychiatrist, and uh, in the first meeting, at the end of it, I just threw it. I said, do you think I have Asperger's? And she said, oh, yeah. Imagine finding out seven decades into your life, a rich yeah. life, an exciting life, a life of extraordinary achievement, but a complex life, that some yeah. of it may be explained by what, is termed, yeah. if, if not fairly, a disorder. And, and you heard him say it there. He right. says it explains a lot. One of the great things I've seen, Eric, over the years is people that struggle with total return and they get moved out of institutions for whatever reason. There's a guy named Jeffrey Vinnick who mm -hmm. happens to run the most successful franchise in hockey now down in Tampa Bay, <laughs> who's an absolute textbook example. Weeks or months or quarters later, Whatever their theory was or bet pays off in spades. Is, does Bill have any feeling of he's leaving the game now and that it could all turn around in a Bill Gross manner? Yeah, he, he does. He thinks that, that his trades are still good, but it's going to take too long yeah. for them to be money good. And, and that's the issue. He said he needs to give his clients a break. They've been hanging on for too long. He's going to continue yeah. managing his own money. He's going to do it more conservatively. He's going to right. continue selling volatility, which he acknowledges may now and then look like a mistake. Right. But he's going to be investing yeah. in closed-end funds. He's going to be investing in munis, for example. Um, yeah. He's not going to be uh, making levered bets cool. on the convergence of uh, you know German yeah. bunds and U.S. treasuries. You've been done two things today successfully. Your wonderful interview with Mr. Gross and also 422 New York Rangers fans have emailed in on your <laughs> Leafs 
Islanders analysis. It's, it's all here. about conversion. We say, Jonathan, good morning out there, and the many other Ranger fans that have... Uh, uh, looking for their Tavares, if you uh, will. Eric Shasker, and look Thank for that John. tonight on Bloomberg Television, 9 p.m., and much through the weekend as well. Shasker in conversation with Glows. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.